Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the show, we are going to talk to a reporter from the Washington Post. Uh, That paper just did a story about homicide investigations in cities around the country, and they found some really interesting things about homicide investigations right here in the city of Detroit. It has to do with the caseload that each homicide detective is Carrying the higher the load, apparently, the lower the clearance rate, the fewer cases that they actually solve. So that will be a very interesting conversation about what they found here in Detroit uh, and what they think ought to be done about it. That'll get started at about 40 or 45 minutes past the hour. But first today, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and a woman who is accusing him of sexual assault in 1982 are both scheduled to testify on Thursday about these allegations. Since Christine Blasey Ford came out with her story of being assaulted at a party in high school, there has been another woman who's come forward with a story of sexual impropriety while she and Kavanaugh were students together at Yale University. For his part, Kavanaugh says this is all just an elaborate attempt to smear his name and his credibility. And importantly, he says he will not withdraw from the nomination process. That is where we want to begin the conversation today with what is going on in the Kavanaugh nomination. Uh, And joining us to talk more about it is Tim Alberta. He's a feature reporter for Politico magazine. Tim, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Good morning. Yes. So I want to start with uh, with Brett Kavanaugh's appearance yesterday on Fox uh, News to talk about these allegations and to talk about uh, a lot of things about his life. Number one, this was an extraordinary appearance, in, in, in my view. If you think about Supreme Court nominees, really the only time we ever hear from them is during their testimony in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. I can't think of another person who's gone on a television network to make uh, their case. But I want to get your reaction to the things that he said during that interview and whether you think that changes the dynamic, makes it more or less likely that we get to Thursday and these hearings that happen, and whether it makes it more or less likely that Brett Kavanaugh gets confirmed to the Supreme Court. Sure. Well, uh, there's a lot to unpack in all of this. I I think... You know, kind of fundamentally, Stephen, I, I, I view the interview yesterday as a sign that uh, Kavanaugh and the White House and the, and the folks who are uh, tasked with getting him confirmed that, that they are going to stay on offense here, that, that, that um, they are prepared for Thursday, that they are prepared for, you know, both of these women uh, to, to come forward and testify, that that is how they are, uh, that, that's how they view the week shaping up. And so they wanted to sort of strike first. They wanted to have, you know, a, a preemptive preliminary uh, engagement with, with, with the general public. They wanted to put Kavanaugh out there first. So I think that this was, this was very much uh, premeditated. I think it was carefully planned. Whether, whether it will help him or hurt him, I think, remains to be seen. But you saw him last night sit down with a, a female interviewer on a friendly network, and that's not to say that, you know, she didn't ask some good questions, but, you know, it, it was very carefully uh, stage managed. He had his wife sitting next to him, and he talked in, I think, uh, you know, surprisingly candid terms about his sex life, mm-hmm. and and I think all of this was meant to, uh, 
uh, you know, just just sort of, you know, get his feet wet a little bit because uh, I think Thursday is already going to be such a chaotic scene and in many ways, uh, you know, such a such a an unprecedented scene mm-hmm. um, that they didn't want him to just be sort of blitzed and and for everything to 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 uh, you know blindside him then. So I think that you know yesterday was an acknowledgement that. Thursday is coming, and that uh, that they're going to be facing, I think, some some very interesting, uh, very very potentially uh, you know damaging and uncomfortable questions, yeah. and so they wanted to give him uh, you know some training wheels more or less yesterday. Yeah, um, as you sort of sit though and pick apart the things that he said during that interview, uh, they seem like answers you can give on a television network and especially on a television network that's pretty sympathetic to your side of the political spectrum. I wonder though whether you think those kinds of answers which he he I think carefully avoided a lot of specifics and gave general denials uh, about what he's accused of. Is that going to fly in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee? I uh, no, probably not, but uh, you know, I I think the the extent to which he's willing to get into specifics or, or, or able to get into specifics is probably going to <laughs> depend in, in, in no small part on the questioning. And, and you know, you, you have some Democrats on that panel who I think are going to push him, uh, you know, not harder than others, but I guess more explicitly than others. And when I say more explicitly, I mean more sexually explicitly. And I think that's where Kavanaugh's own history makes this entire situation just so fascinating because, again, he was involved, obviously, in, in, the, uh, in the investigation into President Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. And as it's been very well documented, Stephen, he was the one who it was almost a, is kind of a, a source of, of snickering and an inside joke in Washington at the time that, that Kavanaugh was the one who was pressing for Ken Starr, the special counsel, to ask extremely explicit questions about Bill Clinton and his sexual activities with Monica Lewinsky. And, and Ken Starr, for the most part, held back on that. So it's, it's I think, you know, incredibly interesting and, and, and ironic in its own way that now I think the degree to which these hearings uh, go off the rails or stay on the rails Thursday in large part is going to depend on, on how far – the questioning will go to to Brett Kavanaugh on some of those same topics. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Tim Alberta. He's a feature reporter for Politico magazine. We are talking about what will become of the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to be the 114th Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Thursday, there are hearings scheduled for uh, Kavanaugh to testify and for his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, to talk about these allegations she has made about Brett Kavanaugh and his conduct uh, with regard to her, sexual conduct with regard to her in when they were in high school. A second woman has also come forward and talked about uh, an incident with Brett Kavanaugh that she says happened when they were students together at Yale University. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you make of the Kavanaugh situation. Uh, are you interested in seeing these allegations investigated more seriously, perhaps, than the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to be able to do? Would you like to see the FBI 
get involved and really look into these allegations? And uh, do you think Kavanaugh's nomination is going to survive this period and that he will get confirmed to the Supreme Court? Or do you think he will either withdraw or maybe get voted down? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Tim, I want to talk about this latest accusation. Uh, comes uh, via an article in The New Yorker by Ronan Farrell, who has done a lot of work in this space over the last year and a half. Um, uh, this is about an incident that he that uh, an accuser says happened at Yale University, uh, another uh, another um, uh, accusation of sexual misconduct against Brett Kavanaugh. What do you make of that story in The New Yorker and of that accusation? Sure. Well, I think, you know, treading carefully, Stephen, my, my reaction, and I think the reaction of an awful lot of my peers in the, you know, political media universe was that uh, the, the way in which Deborah Ramirez's story was was presented in the New Yorker story was was a bit odd, and um, and I say that because the story itself, uh, for, for starters, seemed to embed within it uh, three or four times uh, almost uh, apologies to the readers, uh, saying you know um, you know in so many words like. We're not totally sure about this, but we're telling you what we do know here. I heard, I heard a, a smart person uh, in the media sort of liken it to a, a math teacher showing you their work on the board and, and, and giving partial credit for, even if the answer wasn't right, that at least they show you how they got there. It was a very strange story because at first uh, Deborah Ramirez is talking about how you know, this was 35 years ago, and how she really couldn't be sure, and how she had contacted other people, talking to them about it, trying to get some clarity, but that she just really didn't remember. And then there was a phrase in the story that said uh, something to the effect, I'm not, this isn't quite verbatim, but it was something to the effect of after six days of carefully assessing her memories, I believe that might have been verbatim, mm-hmm. uh, after six days of carefully assessing her memories, um, Deborah Ramirez uh, was prepared to say that, that it was Brett Kavanaugh who, in fact, did this. Um, and then there were several other parts of the story that were just very strange, uh, just to put it mildly. And I think so a lot, of, a lot of us were scratching our heads and reading it. I can, I can just tell you that in conversations with a lot of my friends in journalism, people who I really respect and whose opinions I really value at, at, at um, publications in, in Washington, at least, there was a lot of skepticism about the story and, and just the decision to print it. Not about, you know, whether or not this did or did not happen. Nobody's saying that they don't believe uh, Deborah Ramirez or that they do. Just a matter of journalistic standards here. The evidentiary bar uh, is and should be very high for, for printing accusations uh, like that. Um, and when someone is essentially acknowledging that they're not that they weren't totally sure until a few days ago, but now they are sure. And then when the New York Times uh, subsequently reported that they uh, contacted several dozen people uh, in trying to corroborate this and that not a single person could corroborate it, and furthermore, the New York Times reported that Deborah Ramirez had been calling around telling people that she couldn't really remember 
whether it was Kavanaugh or not, and that she just didn't know, and then suddenly she did. So I think it's just, it was a very, uh, again, just a very strange set of circumstances surrounding the publication of the piece. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Tell us what you make of this situation surrounding Brett Kavanaugh. Are you interested in seeing these claims investigated? And what do you think will be the effect on Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to be the 114th justice to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Tim, I want to change subjects just slightly here. Yesterday, news broke that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein was expected to either resign or be fired by the White House for reports in the New York Times that he, Rosenstein, was actively working to dismantle the Trump presidency. But Rosenstein has his job at least until Thursday when he is expected to meet with President Trump uh, this is just the latest quarter turn in this ongoing saga of the investigation into the 2016 election. Uh, what is what are we to make of this news that uh, Rosenstein could be fired? <laughs> I mean, what are we to make? It's inc- Stephen. This is just it's a really incredible story. First and foremost, it, it's been my belief for a while now that outside of Bob Mueller, the special counsel, that there is no more interesting man in America than Rod Rosenstein, um, because he is the, the one standing watch over the special counsel's investigation. He is the one that sort of stands, for all intents and purposes, stands between Donald Trump and, and Bob Mueller. And, and this is someone who uh, congressional Republicans who are allies of Donald Trump have gone after publicly and privately, and, and Rosenstein has sort of gone to the mattresses with them. And uh, he's just a very fascinating character. And as I was saying to somebody yesterday, wait until this guy writes his tell-all book. I have a feeling it's going to be even even juicier than, than James Comey's. Um, he, this is someone who, you know, it's just known that he and the president do not get along, mm-hmm. that he does not think very highly of the president. And so there's a lot of tension in the relationship. So when... And, there, and that's been simmering for months and months. And so when my uh, good friend of mine, Jonathan Swan at Axios yesterday, broke the story that Rosenstein had offered his resignation, mm-hmm. I don't think many of us were surprised. Um, uh, I think to the extent we were surprised, folks had figured that uh, Rosenstein, if he were to leave, were going, was going to be fired by Trump, not that he would resign willingly. And then the subsequent you know, swirl of reports was all over the map that, well, had he resigned or had he just offered his resignation, but Kelly, John Kelly, the chief of staff, refused it, or was he expecting Trump to fire him and he was kind of moving preemptively? So now he's going to meet with Donald Trump against a backdrop here uh, where the stakes really couldn't be any higher, not mm-hmm. to be dramatic, but you have this special counsel investigation that Congress has refused to legislatively protect. In other words, they have not passed any kind of a bill protecting Bob Mueller's investigation because folks on the Republican side believe that Rosenstein is going to do that himself. And so Donald Trump and, and people close to him, there's been, there have been you know, whispers for a very long time about getting rid of Mueller and then ending the investigation. So what happens when these two men meet Thursday? It's almost like two heads of state uh, gathering uh, with with um, like a, a war, a potential for war in the background. I mean, it really is that dramatic. And, and I think, obviously, uh, if Rosenstein does, in fact, leave, then there are enormous questions for what happens to Mueller's investigation going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's get to some of the calls. Uh, Heather in Ferndale, welcome to Detroit today. Yes, hi. I just wanted to say regarding the Ramirez story, my understanding is they, 
did, it was people around her who clearly remembered the event, who were exchanging emails back in June or July. And her memory may have been fuzzy because she admits that she was very drunk, but it seems to me that there's an awful lot of corroborating evidence around the around her story. You know, her own memory was a bit fuzzy about it, but there are other people who, who were there who were very clear about what had happened. Mm -hmm. And also, I just want to make one other quick comment. We need more wisdom in journalism. It's been very clear over the last few days. Mm -hmm. We need to, to be a little more cautious about what they choose to advance. I feel like there have been a number of really egregious stories. Yeah, Heather, um, Heather, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Uh, Tim Alberta, there there have been some people who've come out and said they do remember this happening. Uh, one of them is Brett Kavanaugh's roommate from Yale, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what about that kind of corroboration? Well, so the, the, only, the only person who was cited in the New Yorker piece, unless I'm mistaken here, and that's possible, but the only person who was, who was uh, presented as a corroborating witness, and this became the subject of some scrutiny yesterday, uh, was someone who, was, who, who, who told the reporters, uh, Ronan Farrow and Jane Meyer, th that they remembered hearing about it from someone who was in the room. In other words, so this was secondhand. So, so uh, in any legal sense, that's not a corroborating witness. A, sure. you know, to, to corroborate is someone who, who, who was there and who witnessed it themselves. Um, the, and Jane Meyer said as much yesterday on NBC. She, she was giving an interview and said, yes, this, this was somebody who was sort of one step removed. Um, but as the New York Times, again, reported in their piece, they made efforts over, over weeks, to, and they tried contacting dozens of people who were there. Uh, at 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 the actual uh, you know in the dorm when this happened, mm -hmm. and that they and that none of those people who were there recalled it happening. That it was that the sourcing was secondhand for somebody who had a friend there who then heard about it the next day, yeah. um, but not somebody who was actually in the room. So that's a pretty important distinction, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, Heather, again, thanks for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Wayne in Windsor. Wayne, welcome to Detroit today. Well, call Stephen. Hi. And uh, I appreciate that uh, uh, you and your uh, guest today are open-minded. However, I have to admit that I'm not. Uh, I've been watching and following this, and uh, I really don't think a lot of people were surprised when Blasey Ford came forward, considering the, the nature that exists currently. Uh, I wasn't surprised that a second person came forward, and I'm certainly not surprised that Michael Avenetti's out there telling a couple other people to come forward. It just seems that it's become you know, the most brutal tribalism that I think I have ever seen. And, uh, you know, I turn on the TV anymore, and it's almost, why don't they just wear uniforms? <laughs> and, and, and quite honestly, my 87-year-old dad, who's a casual observer, but still pretty active, he said to me the other day, the Americans really should be ashamed of themselves. And, you know, from, from, a, uh, from an international perspective, I just, you know, like, yeah. Wayne, isn't enough enough? Wayne, I really appreciate uh, your call and that perspective from right across the river in Windsor, but, uh, of course, in another country. Uh, Tim Alberta, uh, I think everybody is sort of, you know, holding on to their seats here, trying to think, how do we get past all of this, and what does the world look like uh, on the other side? 
Well, I know I am, and I'm, I'm sure you are too, Stephen. There's, look, at the end of the day, I think it's fair to, to view the entire Kavanaugh confirmation battle as the culmination of, of, of 20 months of just insanity uh, surrounding uh, this administration and, and sort of the partisan warfare that has intensified to a degree in Washington that none of us have really seen. And, of course, you know, Trump's presidency was the culmination in many ways of, of significant, you know, cultural and socioeconomic disruption and, and, um, and polarization that had begun to grip the electorate starting in the, you know, really in the late 90s, I think, is when you could trace it to. But, but at the end of the day, um, look, we are living through a very, very, I think, strange period of history here where, you know, uh, it's fair to say, if you just think about Kavanaugh, everything from, from the initial accusations to the denials to the attempted alibi on the part of, uh, of, a, of a prominent conservative in Washington who's a friend of, of Kavanaugh's, which was just in and of itself one of the strangest episodes anyone has ever seen, mm-hmm. to, to the media handling of it, to the politicians, the elected officials, and their handling of it with, with Dianne Feinstein um, sort of sitting on the initial letter from Dr. Ford for, for months, all of it adds up to just this very combustible situation now where, to the caller's point, uh, you can almost know whether or not someone believes these accusers or whether somebody believes uh, Brett Kavanaugh based on their partisan affiliation. Um, it's entirely predictable. If I go up and down my Twitter feed, I don't even need to see what somebody says. If, if I just see who it is, if I see their Twitter handle, I'm already going to know what their commentary on the issue is going to be 99 times out of 100. And I think it is a little bit troubling, and it just sort of takes us farther through this this you know, polarized looking glass that American politics and American culture is today. Okay, Tim Alberta, feature reporter with Political Magazine. Thanks very much for joining us here on Detroit Today. It's my pleasure. Up next, we're going to talk to a Washington Post investigative reporter about her look into the Detroit Police Department and particularly homicide investigations. Also, don't forget, if you miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.